our listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, positive psychology practitioner, fitness professional, and wellness coach, Darlene Marshall. And to kick off the show today, I want to celebrate two very special milestones. The first, just this week, is four years since we started the Better Than Fine podcast, originally as my own little side project during the pandemic. And then two years ago, picked up here on the NASM Podcasting Network, where just last week we aired the 100th episode here on NASM's Podcasting Network. <sighs> Woo! Yeah! I'm very excited about all of that. There's a lot of hard work and love and effort that goes into producing the show every week for you. Thank you to my producer, Eric, first off, for catching the 100th episode. Uh, it slipped past me because there's been a lot going on. Um, but also, Eric, for all of your hard work. Thank you so much for your behind-the-scenes support. And of course, to you, our listeners. Uh, this show doesn't really mean anything if it doesn't do much for you. And quite a few of you have reached out recently. Uh, I know I've been mentioning on the show some challenges that have been going on in my life. And a number of you have reached out to just express what the show has meant to you, how it's helped you personally and professionally. And that means a whole lot to me. So thank you for that outreach. Thank you for enjoying and, and learning along with me in the four years since we started this project. Uh, and I also... Now, in retrospect, having caught up on those things from Eric, appreciate this week's show and how meaningful it is around this four-year anniversary of the show. Because back in 2019, I was thinking about you know going into this little field that you might have heard of called positive psychology. Uh, and to do that, I knew that I wanted to get some new education. And so I was going to step in to this big scary chapter in my life. I wasn't really sure what to do about it. Um, could I really get into this program? What would I do with myself professionally if I did? Uh, and as I often do when I'm in a moment of transition or pivot, or I'm not really sure what to do with myself, I confide in someone I trust. And there's this axiom that I bring to my work, which is find people you trust and then do what they say. And so I, I reached out to someone that I knew they would take my new budding baby dream very seriously, but they'd also give me honest and compassionate feedback. And since that time, whenever I get stuck professionally, uh, whether we're talking about career pivots, big pitches, uh, somebody reaches out and asks me if I'll do something, I don't really even know how to do that. Uh, my like, oh, what do I do? Call has been today's guests. So, uh, you know, spoiler alert, the advice she gave me was to step into that pivot that she believed in me completely. And um, yeah, that's part of how we got here. Um, but today's guest, I've known her for eight years. She's been a font of information for me. She's who I call when I don't know what to do professionally. Uh, and she even taught me how to use a teleprompter before my very first onset shoot with NASM. So if you've taken Certified Wellness Coach and I sound like I know what I'm doing, that's partly because of today's guest. Ellie Hearn, she is the founder of Penciler Inc., where she specializes in helping leaders to make strategy and culture work together at work. She's got a master's degree from the University of St. Andrews and a postdoctorate certificate, excuse me, postdoctorate diploma in organizational leadership from Oxford University Syed Business School, where she is currently the head tutor for their strategic innovation program. She's really smart, really kind, and really funny. I'm very excited to have her on the show. Ellie Hearn, welcome back to Better Than Fine, because you were in that first cache of episodes that I was self-producing from Zoom during the pandemic. Uh, and it's exciting to have you on the show now that we're on NASM's network. 
Wow, thank you for having me. I hope I can live up to that amazing introduction. And I think it's important to note that you're my first call when I'm making a big decision or I'm in a situation where I'm not sure if my discomfort is something to listen to or to power through. So it is definitely mutual, my friend. Oh, what a good sentence. Uh, whether my discomfort is something to listen to or power through, I think is really reflective of your level of emotional intelligence and self-awareness. Um, so that's just a, a, a feather in your cap there. Um, and I think it's important to point out, I always try to point out in the show, whenever you've got an experienced and qualified professional who also reaches out to other people. Um, and one of the things I love about our relationship is that we coach each other um, which I know we were in a conversation on Friday that people seemed really surprised when we said that. It's like, yeah, like Ellie coaches me, I coach Ellie. And that's and that's one of the awesome things about getting to be your friend. Um, so yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Thanks for being well, here. Back at you. Thank you. Well, we're here to talk about psychological safety, or at least that's what the banner on the episode says. So let's just start with what is it? I feel like this is one of those buzzy words like resilience, burnout, that people just keep saying but a lot of times they don't actually know what they mean from the actual evidence-based perspective. So what is psychological safety? Yeah, so it's often misunderstood, as you allude to, like some of these other terms that become quite buzzy. What it actually is, is this shared belief by a group or a team that it's okay to take risks, it's okay to share ideas and to innovate, essentially, that you should be asking questions, you can admit mistakes, all in this environment or culture where it's not going to be a situation where you're blamed you know, unfairly or you're not gonna suffer these negative repercussions for speaking your mind or sharing an idea that might be contrary to what the way things have been done before. Yeah, let's not, uh, I think to deepen this for the leader, for the, for the leader, ooh, for the leader and the <laughs> listener, some of our listeners are also leaders. You say negative repercussions and I think people, just think of just punitive, right? Like, ah, oh, if I speak my mind, I won't get that promotion or whatever. But I think there's other kinds of negative repercussions that chip away at psychological safety. What what are some of those? Because I'm, assu I'm assuming I'm right, unless I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. I think you're right. So I would say if you think about a workplace meeting, like we probably, I know there's a lot of self-employed folks on the call and we'll speak more to that, I'm sure throughout the call, because I know you and I very much fall into that. And also we've probably all experienced being in a meeting where maybe we've shared an idea and perhaps somebody's rolled their eyes or they've ignored us and somebody else has shared the same idea and then got credit for it mm. later. All of these things are like a thousand paper cuts when it comes to maintaining and growing psychological safety. It's something that is hard to build and very easy to, to damage. And to your point, it can happen in ways that you might not expect. Oh, I, I think I know you counseled me through this experience at a former employer that will remain unnamed. The one of those that cut was my thousand paper cuts was you share an idea, you don't get credit. And then someone else picks up your idea like a football and runs it down the field. And you're like, no, that was mine. So what happens when we have our thousand paper cuts, our, our little slights and subtle digs, or we're, we're being eroded? Because I know what I did, but what what collectively happens to us if we're in situations where, you know, the other thing, the other metaphor is coming to mind is piranhas, right? Like one little tiny bite of very pointy teeth. And then, you know, I got a bleeding, gaping wound. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a good way. I mean, it's 
kind of a downer, but I think it's a good way to think about the stakes here. I would say there's three main kind of layers of repercussion. One is on an individual level. If you are the person who doesn't feel like you can enjoy psychological safety, then it's a missed opportunity. You're going to be probably unhappy on your team because you can't speak freely. You can't share your ideas. You can't contribute as a whole person. And mm. you don't have to be on the Better Than Vine podcast to know that that is really not a good thing, right? It's not what we want to be see what we want to be seeing. I would also say that there's a team cost to it as well. So if people on that team aren't able to speak up and say, actually, I think there might be some issues with that idea, or I hear what you're saying. And I want to add on this other angle that may not have been considered yet because my experience suggests that we may need to think about this. An example of that might be early days at YouTube when they were designing the app, which you would think is a pretty important part of what YouTube mm. does. They had a team where everybody on it was right-handed. So you would turn your phone and the videos would turn from vertical, from portrait to horizontal. But somebody who was left-handed said, well, what if we turn our phones the other way? And I think everybody, especially left-handed people, are probably grateful that that person was on the team and able to speak their mind. Because if they hadn't, or if that person had perhaps been maybe more junior or newer on the team or in an environment where they didn't feel they could contribute, then where would we be with our smartphones now? I hope we would have figured it out one way or another. So there's a team downside. And also the kind of third layer beyond the individual and the team is the broader market opportunity, if you like. So the broader landscape of how we progress as humans. If we're not hearing everybody's ideas, if we're not hearing people who perhaps have some misgivings speak up, then we're missing out on potential new opportunities, cool ideas, innovations. And even those are all really positive things. The other element of psychological safety is it also allows us to prevent disasters and mistakes. You mentioned that we were together last week. We were working with the team on various aspects of their culture and their well-being, as you might expect with Darlene Marshall in the room. That's going to be front and center. We also talked a lot about psychological safety. And one of the examples we use, this is such a downer, but I think it really illustrates the point, is this case study at NASA when they were launching Challenger in 1986. They knew because engineers had told them that if they launched with the temperatures where they were, that it was a much, much more risky endeavor. But it was really hard for those engineers to speak up and to get the airtime that they needed and an environment that would welcome their different perspective when it was the last thing anyone wanted to hear. And we all know how that went, right? It resulted in this horrific disaster. That may seem dramatic. It is also, being dramatic, a good illustration of why it's so important to embrace psychological safety. And I also want to shout out Amy Edmondson, who was the lead researcher who pioneered, you know, certainly using the term psychological safety, but 25 years ago did a lot of research that still informs what we do with it now. You're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Darlene Marshall, and my guest today is Ellie Hearn, and we are talking about psychological safety. And there's two things from what you just shared, Ellie, that I want to point out. And the first one is to just point out as a practitioner, Ellie's incredible uh, intellectual humility. I don't know if anybody else picked up on this as she was unpacking that framework of these three levels of psychological safety and the detriment. Uh, but not only did she shout out me and work that I do as if it was to be celebrated, which thank you, Ellie, I appreciate that very much, but also the recognition of by name, the researcher and when that 
research was done. Um, and I just think as a coach, as a person, as a, you know, practitioner who is also research-based, I consistently notice you doing things like that, calling in the names of other practitioners you believe deserve recognition, who you're standing shoulder to shoulder to or on the shoulders of. And I just want to celebrate that as practice because I often think that as, as coaches, as practitioners, as leaders in the space, there, there feels like there is a jockeying as if there's not enough space for all of us. And one, you've never, I've never seen you do anything like that. And you really have given me a, a front and center masterclass on how to carry myself in a space. So uh, kudos. I think that that kind of behavior creates psychological safety. Uh, would you, would you agree? <laughs> It does. And thank you for saying all of that. I'm blushing over here. <laughs> I, I would say it does. And I would also kind of zoom out a little bit and connect some dots based on what you just said. I think my ability and the con conditions that allow me to do that, to call out other people and their expertise are, if not a symptom of psychological safety, a symptom of some of the progress that has enabled us to talk more about psychological safety. So what I mean by that is, over the last 10, 20, 30, even 40 years, and the kind of work of studying businesses and organizations and how they work well is much more nascent than you might think. There's been this kind of evolution in what we think of as leaders and leadership traits. And as you sent me some questions in advance for this, it really got me thinking about why do we talk about psychological safety now? Why does sometimes people not embrace it or dismiss it? And I think it's partly related to the sort of archetypes we have of leaders now, and it's very much a work in progress and there's a lot of work to do, really do embrace different points of view, which is a nice example of psychological safety, and also move away from this kind of older stereotype of a leader looks a certain way, talks a certain way, there's somebody who has all the answers and is completely infallible. When I think we all know that that idea of leadership beyond being dated and a missed opportunity, it's also kind of exhausting, right? Like leaders don't want to have to know all the answers. I think it's a breath of fresh air that we can say, I don't have an answer to your question, but I know how to find out or let's ask this new question and let, let's reframe it. And I think my ability to stand in front of a room and call out and call in other practitioners is also a reminder that I don't have to show people that I'm this person who is completely flawless, right? But instead, I'm somebody who can bring in others and spotlight their expertise. I realize this did not answer your question, but maybe, <laughs> maybe if you ask it again, no. I can have another swing. No, I, don't, I think that you did, though. I think that it was a, a, a nice exploration of this idea that and, and it, it it led into the next place I was going to go um, in a, a different way, which was around like, well, the things that chip away at our psychological safety, why do they happen? And I think that you touched on at least one potential reason, which is fragility, right? Like if we think, oh, I have to know the answer. I have to be perfect. I have to be the one that brings the idea in the room, or I'm not proving that I have value. And there's only a limited number of, you know, whatever resource we're talking about, time, social currency, status, like whatever it is, I've got to elbow the other person out of the way or steal their idea or tell them that they're an idiot um, because I need to raise my status or take up more space. But if we, we as leaders in front of the room, and, and this happened when we were co-facilitating last weekend, right? Like I said something off the cuff that wasn't quite what I meant. And another person in the room said, hold on a second. 
and called out the word choice I made. And I was like, you know what? You're right. That's not the point I was trying to make. I'm really glad that you said that, right? And and you and I are of the mindset that that makes us better facilitators, but there's certainly people out there who would have gotten very defensive and deeply entrenched and started saying why mastery was exactly the word that they meant. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and it's tired. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's that's very true. Yeah. So I think it's a fragility piece, but this actually speaks back to your YouTube answer. And, YouTube example. And this was the second thing that I wanted to reflect back was the left-handed person being like, Hey, hold up a second. Um, there is a subset of the population that needs this to work differently is an example of why diversity in the, in the space matters and psychological safety in diverse populations matters, right? Cause here's a very low stakes example in this example of somebody who's just a bit different, who feels safe going, um, hey, I'm, I'm different and um, I need it to work for me too. And there's lots of examples we could come up with, I'm sure, of places that don't have psychological safety for diverse populations. And they feel like they can't say, hey, I'm different. I need this to work for me because they are afraid of the repercussions and how this dovetails. Do you want to expound on that anymore? But that's the other thing that I took away from your three levels examples. Yeah, I think it's especially important when you're trying to, as all good leaders should, right, call in and bring in everybody and make sure that their team is representative of, representative of or at least mm -hmm. not hostile to and more welcoming of different perspectives, different points of view, different backgrounds, different races, different genders, experiences, all of the above. If you are creating an environment where everybody can thrive, then you're doing something right. Ooh, you know, I love that word thrive. Um, this is actually the second time today I've had a conversation about the way that equi equity and inclusivity dovetail with thriving and well-being. Um, so talk to us a little bit about psychological safety and its role in thriving, if you feel comfortable expanding on that idea. I think it's really important. Definitely. So for me, it kind of comes down to you know, actually, it reminds me of why, and we haven't touched on this yet, but I think it's a relevant kind of detail yeah, yeah. before I get to, I'm, you know me, I'm always going to find the most circuitous route to actually answer <laughs> I love question. circles, yeah. <laughs> um, so if you'll come with me on this little journey, I think part mm -hmm. of the reason we referenced it briefly earlier, psychological safety is misunderstood, is people hear the term or they hear other people's interpretation of the term and they think, okay, let me roll my eyes. This seems like something where we're going to make it okay for people to perform poorly. We're going to all hold hands. Everything's going to be great. We're never going to talk about the elephants in the room because we want everybody to be safe, right? Mm. In practice, psychological safety and in the original research depended on not just having an environment that had high psychological safety, but an environment that both embraced that and high performance standards and accountability. So when you put those two things together, when you have that kind of overlapping Venn diagram, if you want to picture it, you have an environment where people can learn and that is where people can thrive. And I think this also dovetails nicely with what we were just saying about how being a good leader slash being a contributing member of society and thriving in your own way <laughs> isn't about being perfect or about having all the answers. It's about having that mindset where you can learn and grow and that 
fits nicely with other ideas I've heard about on your podcast, like resilience, right? Like well-being. If you're in an environment where you know that when you make a mistake, not only will you not get out and out blamed for it and made to feel terrible and maybe never trusted again, but you're in an environment where people will say, well, let's think about how we can better support you going forward, what you can learn from this. And hopefully you're at a place where you can say, here's what I've learned from it. Let's get better. Let's figure this out together. And hey, you person coming up behind me, you should know that this is a landmine that I stepped on, but you don't have to. Then that's really a special thing. That's going to lend itself to thriving. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, the faux projection of psychological safety is fragile, right? Like, oh, we can't do anything that's going to trigger anybody. Uh, uh, uh. When in actuality, psychological safety is something that makes us more robust and resilient. We are more productive. We, you know, in the long run, right? I think there's also that argument against psychological safety. It's like, no, we just have to get, we just got to get stuff done. <laughs> like, mm, we don't have time for ideas and counter ideas and feelings. Um, and in actuality, you know, what's that? Um, uh, that prior preparation, preparation prevents poor performance, well, however many P's it is, whatever. It's like, if we actually slow down and do it right the first time, we're not going to have to go back and redo it because it's broken. Right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I like, I, I don't remember the one you're talking about, but I like the, <laughs> if you fail to plan, you plan to fail a la yep. Benjamin Franklin and Taylor Swift more recently. So Yes, absolutely. There's a cost to not making time for it. I don't know very many people in my life that would be able to reference Benjamin Franklin and Taylor Swift, not only in the same sentence, but the same quote, my friend, (laughs) speaks volumes for you. I feel Um, safe in this space. So thank you. Calling in, calling in. So I think it's really easy for people to say something like, you know, oh, my boss is just a big jerk. Or that teammate is a narcissist. And I, we alluded a moment ago that like, okay, maybe some of the cause of some of this is a bit of fragility or a perception that I'm not psychologically safe as a leader. So I'm going to like, um, why do you think people behave in such a way that detracts from psychological safety? Because I think most of us have had jobs where we felt like, no, I, I don't feel psychologically safe in this space. I alluded a moment ago, employer who will not be named, um, you know, quick explanation of that reference for the listener. I was over many years on multiple teams at the same employer. I would share ideas that I thought were exciting and interesting. You know, I was given a milk away for free. It wasn't part of my job, um, but I wanted to make the space better, the work better, the team better. Um, I would be told, oh, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And then in one instance, it was within a few days. In other instances, it was a couple of weeks or even months later. Other people, men who were of a higher social status, but same employment title as me, uh, were executing my ideas without it being communicated to everyone else, including company wide, that they were my ideas. Um, And I was never given credit. I was also never told why. I was not um, allowed to do it or encouraged to do it. Um, and when I shared that with Ellie, she's like, oh yeah, no, you stop giving them your ideas. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay, <laughs> boss lady, <laughs> whatever you say. Um, why do you think things like this happen? Um, and I, cause I think we have to understand where it's coming from if we're gonna see it in a positive space instead of just writing it off as like, nah, these people be jerks, run away. It comes from a few places, I think. And I'm sure there are others that I'm not thinking about. So one is, 
when you talk about safety, especially in the types of work culture that you're alluding to, right? That's very kind of corporate in some ways, but has this kind of inertia. Maybe it's not the most diverse leadership team, for example. I think when you use terms like safety in those environments, it's very, and this is not the technical term, eye rollable. Like I think there's a sense of, oh, safety. okay, great. let's talk about this. Let's talk excited about this. I don't think people realize, and I think it's a misconception, I don't think people realize that psychological safety depends not just on that safety, but also on accountability and high performance standards. So it's not this kind of, if you have psychological safety without high performance standards, you have an environment of apathy. And if you have no psychological safety and high performance standards, you have one that's more marked by anxiety, which could be a whole mm. other podcast episode in itself. So I think that's one thing. I think people misunderstand it and therefore push it away. I think it's also about two other things that come to mind. And given more time, I could probably think of 10 other things. <laughs> I'll control myself. So one is humans don't like change. And if you go to any workplace environment and say, especially if you're not somebody at the top who generally enjoys more psychological safety than others, even if they don't think about it in that way. But if you go to them and say, I've noticed an opportunity that we could be doing things a bit differently even though different often does mean better. I think there's a very human instinct and kind of magnetism towards inertia, right? Like, oh, actually, well, we've always done it this way. So I don't like the idea that we might be doing it a different way. Thank you very much. Okay, let's just keep doing it this way. We're all good here. No need to change. I'd imagine that the better than fine audience is a little bit more evolved in this way. Although we all like, I like to think I am too, but I still freak out when the Instagram interface changes. And then two days later, I've forgotten what it was like before. So <laughs> I'm the problem. It's me. I'm going to keep putting in Taylor Swift lyrics yes, as we go. I love I it. That's okay. I knew, so, I knew we would talk about Taylor Swift today. I was like, haha, how many Taylor Swift references will like, be on this episode? <laughs> so there's, there's that, the kind of resistance to change. Incidentally, it can be really helpful when you're trying to roll out a change to do two things. One is consider your audience, which is fairly obvious, like who are they and what do they care about? Frame your ask or your idea in those terms and how it relates to those things. That's a good place to start. And also start by talking about what's not going to change. Because I think as humans, we're kind of looking for something to latch onto. And if somebody rolls out any kind of change or idea by first of all saying, here's what's gonna stay the same, that will calm down. You're the psychologist, Dar, so correct me if I'm wrong. Use the <laughs> psychology terms for this. Essentially, that's going to calm down the part of them that gets a bit anxious about change. So starting with what won't change first. The other thing, and this is more of a kind of overarching lesson that leaders always have to learn, and I think humans in general could do well to learn from, is it's not about you. And I think as leaders, when we get to this management role or the next rung on the ladder, I think there's a sense of, oh my goodness, I have to do everything right. Like I have to set the agenda for every meeting. I have to have all the answers. I have to know just where to go when there's a crisis. And I think there's a healthy kind of anxiety that comes from that. I think too much anxiety is obviously a bad thing, but I think it helps us perform better and kind of be on our toes. It also, the kind of unintended consequence there is it creates an environment where it's hard for other people to thrive. Because if you're doing the most talking in every meeting, you're not creating any conditions for your team to thrive. There's also, I'm going to share one analogy and then I'm going to stop talking because I'm not really creating conditions for you to thrive right now. <laughs> I'm thriving. I'm but loving I this. Say, I really like the analogy for leadership of 
leaders are like farmers in that we're not growing crops, but we're creating the conditions for crops to grow. And I think as leaders, if we get more, not necessarily comfortable, because psychological safety isn't about comfort, but if we can feel safe saying, you know what, it's not about me. Maybe I should let my deputy or somebody else lead this meeting each week. Then we are starting to create a better environment for psychological safety and for learning as well. All right. I want to unpack at least five things about this, maybe six. I'm like, a lot of times under the desk when I'm listening to a guest, I'm like, okay, you want to reflect that one and that one. I have too many fingers up. Uh, you're listening <laughs> to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Charlene Marshall. I'll, our guest is Ellie Hearn. We were talking about psychological safety. Ellie coaches leaders, facilitates off-treats and recite. Off, let's try that sentence again. Facilitates <laughs> off-sites and retreats. There we go. Um, she consults on all of the things that we have already talked about in today's episode. Um, but the part of that I want to pluck back out is Ellie coaches and she coaches coaches. And so many things that you just said, where you said the word leader could easily have had the word coach in there. And so I want to backtrack for the coaches and like breadcrumb it for them because, you know, knowing you growing with you, I've learned so much about coaching from you. And I know that as I have been on this journey myself, pivoting the last five, six years, I would often come to be like, what do you think of, what do you think of this idea? What do you think of self-determination theory? What do you think of uh, high quality connections? Like <laughs> Ellie and I geek out together a lot on this stuff. So I think the first thing you said was people don't like change. And as coaches, I think of us as like, change doulas like that's what we do is facilitate change in other people and so i know for me it's very easy for me to forget how much other people don't like change because i'm constantly like what can i make better what can i make different what will feel better uh, to the point that i know it makes matt feel like unstable like he sometimes feels psychologically unsafe because what's the next thing i'm going to walk in the kitchen to be like we should talk about the totally upheaval our lives let's go <laughs> um, so I think as coaches grounding in this idea that not everyone is going to feel the way we feel about whatever it is that we facilitate in other people. I don't know if you want to explore that idea any further. Yeah, I, I'd see it in a couple of different lights. So one is, I think you can have leaders at every level of an organization and in every role. And I know that for coaches, that's perhaps even more true. Like if you're not leading yourself and your clients, then maybe there's a, a, you know, a, an opportunity to grow there. I think leaders can and should be in all areas of, of life. So that's one way I would frame it. In terms of our relationship with change, I don't know if this resonates with you or the listeners, but I, you know, as you put it, we're change doulas, right? Like we help other people <laughs> through change in different arenas. It's almost always that thing for me of the cobbler's children go barefoot. Like I struggle with change myself sometimes. And I think mm. one of the things that in some ways makes me a better coach is it kind of touches on a lot of what we've discussed today is I didn't become a facilitator right out of the gate with perfect presentation skills. I had to learn those and hone those. Mm. And I think that actually makes me a more empathetic coach when I'm working on somebody's presence and presentation skills, for example. And I think it gives me a different perspective versus I'm naturally good at this and I'm going to help you be good at it. I think confidence is helpful, but it goes so much further when it's balanced with humility and empathy. 
Yeah, it reminds me of something that I, I know you and I have talked about offline. And I honestly can't remember if I've talked about this on the show before of like, don't get the, you know, don't hire the personal trainer who could do everything that you want to be able to do and looks all the way you want to look like right out of the gate get the person that had to figure it out or had to go through the process because they're the ones that are going to be able to facilitate a process in someone else. You don't want the person with the like weird genetic gift, um, the outlier <laughs> genetic, the outlier genetic gift. You're not weird. You're gifted. Um, because they don't necessarily know how to foster that change in someone else because they're they're You know, I know this is a Gaga quote and not a Taylor quote, but like they're born this way. Um, so, okay. Coaches facilitate change. The next thing you talked about was starting with the things that are going to stay the same. And I think my like wellness coach brain version of this is I'm going to highlight all the things they're doing right. I always start with when I'm doing my intake, my consult, and I, I give praise to, oh, you're already drinking a ton of water. You're already turning screens off at 8 PM. You're already like, good job. And it's not just about the win. It's also the foundation that change to me is built upon because we know that people are more creative, they're better problem solvers, they're more resilient when they're in a more positively valent state of mind. And so if we start by negging them, yeah, it makes it sound like they super need you, but also it's not about you. Like you just said, again, leaders, it's not about you. Coaches, it's not about you either. It's about them. That's why it's a, a, a change doula and not a change midwife. The midwife is possible for getting the baby in the world. The doula is, is there to facilitate the mother's process. Also, now you yeah. now listener, you've learned some things about birth today. <laughs> I mean, you're speaking my language. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And it also touches on something that we talked about last week. Your poor listeners are going to be like, stop talking about last week. We weren't there. I kind of wish you were because we covered so many interesting things and one of them that's top of mind is this idea of individuation, this idea that for leaders, again, leaders with a lowercase l, to create and foster psychological safety, one of the best things they can do is help the other person feel like an individual and to support their individual needs and development. So instead of saying, in this organization or in this coaching engagement, we're going to get you to perform at your best, instead saying, I know that you're somebody who, in Darlene's example, already drinks a great amount of water each day. We're going to work on getting you to your next level based on the goals that you shared with me. And here's how we're going to do it. Instead of just going in there and saying, this is what works every time, right? Making it about the person. It's also communications 101. Who's your audience and what do they care about? And I think this is a good way to make a few tweaks here and there that will make a big difference to psychological safety. And, you know, when I invited you to come on the show, I was thinking about psychological safety for work specifically. But now that we're really talking about it, I realized that um, it is a it is an important coaching skill, right? The ability that I want my client um, and this again, this happened to me last week. Everything happened last week. Um, <laughs> it, this happened last week that a client came in and opened up about some struggles that they were going through um, that had started the week prior but they didn't feel comfortable telling me in the moment that when it started that they were struggling, they felt like they couldn't deal with my reaction, which then the reaction they actually got was not the reaction that they expected. And then we had to talk about why they felt like they couldn't tell me. Um, but the point being that as coaches, fostering psychological safety for our clients is essential. Um, and also like, I don't know if this, if this is a true pivot, 
But one of the things I really wanted to make sure we cover was what if I'm in a situation that other people are not respecting my psychological safety? How do I deal with it? Um, and I do think as coaches, as much as we want to believe that our clients will respect us and care for us as human beings, um, that is not always the case. And I have had clients that I have had to fire because they can't respect my psychological or emotional safety. Um, so what do we do? How do we handle it? if we're in situations where our psychological safety is being, the piranhas are coming for us and we're being chipped away. I think there's so many different ways to answer this. So I have a few thoughts. A lot of it depends on the specifics. So let me give you a couple of scenarios. So if yeah. it is a client in your example and they're not respecting your psychological safety, I would first of all, gather a couple of examples assuming it's not something egregious and terrible. Like if they make a wildly inappropriate or like sexual comment or something and they have not read the room and it's not all in good fun, then I think you need to say something there and then, even though I recognize that's probably the hardest thing to do because you're in a situation where you feel like something's been violated and it can be really hard to kind of gather yourself in that moment. So I would say, if you can say something there and then, right? Nip it in the bud essentially. If you can or you don't feel up to it, first of all, don't blame yourself because I think a lot of shame comes along with those situations where you've been made to feel especially uncomfortable. And then you have that kind of double whammy of you're walking away from that interaction feeling like you did something wrong when actually you probably didn't, right? Like you're in this horrible situation. So after the fact, deal with it. If you work for a larger organization, one of the upsides of that is there should be somebody you can talk to who will help you deal with it. And you may not have to talk to the person again. I also want to acknowledge that in these relationships, especially when we're self-employed and we're working with clients, we may not have the luxury economically of being able to push back. And I hope that, especially listening to a podcast like this, in time, everybody's going to kind of build their business and build their approach and be able to walk away from bad situations. If you can't, I think addressing it in some way, whether it's documenting it, talking to a friend, putting something in writing, following up directly with the client, but finding, and I think coaches are actually good at this, finding the right way to reach them and think about, mm. okay, who's my audience and what do I care about? What's the mm. best approach here? Is it a lighter touch? Like, hey, not for nothing, but what you said was really uncool. Let's move on which is a way of addressing it that doesn't kind of bring shame on the other person, even if it's warranted because they've done something terrible. And I'm, our minds are probably racing about what that could be. <laughs> but I want to acknowledge that there's a broad swathe of ways people can undermine our psychological safety. If it's what I see more often in my work, which is somebody is working on a team and they feel like they can't speak up in meetings or they can't contribute, get to the heart of where that's coming from. Is it that they just haven't been in that kind of room before and need to build the muscle of speaking up more and saying things. Maybe they're more introverted. Maybe it's they either need to kind of build up their confidence or have somebody else kind of coach or mentor them into the conversation, or they just feel like they need more information to feel prepared. If it's the first one, perhaps you can find an ally on the team to talk to and to say, hey, I want to speak up in this meeting in just the way you do, but I'm a little bit newer. Can you help me out? Like, I'm a bit worried. Usually what will happen at that point is the person will say, don't overthink it. There's plenty of people in this meeting talking more than they perhaps should. Your <laughs> breath of fresh air ideas would be very welcome, right? In which case, great. If it's more, you need more information to feel confident going in there, gather that information, follow up with whoever invited you to the meeting and say, I want to contribute. Would it be helpful if I shared this? 
do what you need to do to have that conversation and get into the room and own your seat at the table. And I should say, not to overgeneralize, but I think often the people who aren't speaking up in meetings are just the ones that can really enrich the discussion. And maybe you're the left-handed person at YouTube, right? So remember that your experience precisely because it's different is what's going to enrich the discussion for all. They may not love hearing it that they, in the YouTube example, had to redesign the entire thing, but they perhaps need to hear it. So remembering that, and there's plenty of examples of famous or influential people who've been that voice in a room, even though you feel like people who are wildly successful probably have never dealt with this. They're probably successful because they've powered through it, right? To come back to what we said at the top of the call. The other thing that might be helpful, and this answer is getting very long now, so interrupt me anytime, no, go. is if there are conditions that are perhaps outside of your control, but problematic and need to be addressed. So I'll give you an example. And I have shared this with Darlene before. Once I was asked to coach this female leader, and you'll understand why that's relevant to the story in a moment, because her manager said, oh, well, she's on our leadership team, but she is clearly not confident. So when I hear that, it rings a slight alarm bell because confidence is in our minds, right? It's up here. I'm pointing to my head, but unless you're watching on YouTube or Instagram, you may not see that. So I said, well, can you give me some examples? And they said, well, she never speaks up in our team meetings. And that was kind of the only example. So I sat down with this woman and after what she wanted to get from the discussion and what she, her coaching goals were, probably similar to what many of you do in your different fields. And she shared that. And then after a while, she seemed really uncomfortable. And I said, if you don't mind me saying, it seems like you're very uncomfortable. Like, can you share a little bit? Like we, we worked on building trust very quickly and she started to cry. And she said, on my first day in this leadership role, I was told that I should be seen and not heard by one of the men on the team. And it turned out and make of this what you will, I don't want to make too many assumptions. There were 10 white men on the team and she was one of two women of color. And that was the whole leadership team. Both of these women had been pulled aside and told to be seen and not heard. So to me, that's not really a confidence issue. That's a whole lot of other issues that are less that woman's fault than anything I was led to believe going in. So if you're dealing with something like that, please don't think I'm saying just go in there and speak up more. I think that's part of it. And I think that ultimately can help. But I think you have to look at the broader context and think, okay, there's a bigger problem here. How can I go about solving it? And if I'm not empowered to do that, what are my next steps, right? In the case of that person, she was able to use me. And because I said, are you okay with me going in there and like making some trouble? Because this seems like Hold something up. I should be dealing with and not you. Um, so there's so many different layers to it. The short answer is it depends. And I think within that, there's a lot of different things that you can do and also recognize where it can be trickier to do them in practice because we have to live and work in the world as it is rather than in the world as it should be. Every time I hear that story, I want to scream very loudly at the top of my life. I wish I'd made it up because it seems like I've made it up, but it's real. And I know the people and I know the company and they're doing a lot better now, but it was a big one. Well, and they're doing a lot better because they had feedback and they had a strong interest in getting it right, which is why you were brought in, right? Like yeah. I, I always say, whenever I'm doing any kind of corporate work, um, when people bring up, you know, conflicts and examples, it's like, well, you, you must have some interest and your employer must have some interest in having actual well-being at work, or I wouldn't be here. Right. If you, if you didn't care about the human, I wouldn't be here. And so in this case, mm -hmm. as much as I get my lips become a line and I shake my head back and forth in my frustration, 
you were also invited in, which says that even though that sounds like individual created circumstances where they felt disempowered, at least some other leaders were able to recognize, hey, something's going on around here and let's fix it. Um, but I think, you know, the takeaways that I pull from, from all of this is like, one, it's a growth process. And the other big one that is you were talking about the person who feels disempowered in, in meetings or feeling like they can't speak up, um, they, they want to speak up, just to dovetail back to this idea, idea that psychological safety is not like frou-frou, hippy-dippy, the way that like unmeaningful, like well-being or resilience practices or whatever, like, oh, you know, soft skills. Ellie is the person who taught me the phrase people skills or human skills. So anytime you've ever heard me say that on the show, that's coming directly out of Ellie's mouth. Um, but this idea that psychological safety is resilient and it's not always going to be comfortable so the person who feels anxious or feels, um, who does feel low confidence that's being pushed to step into the space, that isn't a lack of psychological safety that's pushing that person. It's trying to create the opportunity so that they can meaningful, meaningfully contribute and we can have diverse voices in a room. Did I get it? Yes. Did I, did good synopsis? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, awesome. you know all too well. It's so important. So one thing that I would just add to that is yeah. it's kind of a, a, a lightning rod. It touches on every aspect of how humans work together, right? Whether that's in a traditional kind of corporate team or in a temporary group that's together in a fitness class, like it touches on all these different worlds. And I bump up against it a lot as a coach and as somebody who helps teams work together more effectively. And it also comes up a lot in the work that I do on strategy, because you can't have a good strategy. You can't create one and define one without an environment where everybody can share their ideas and innovate and come up with, I mean, the left-handed thing is a good example because it's not even that groundbreaking, right? It's just very basic. Like I want to be able to use this device that we're working on together. It also kind of helps people tap into broader business potential. And it's something that if you want to actually implement a strategy, you have to have high psychological safety. Otherwise, it's not going to get off the ground. There's an expression that I use a lot, which is culture each strategy for breakfast. Psychological mm. safety is what's going to stop that, right? And it's also going to help you tap into other great things that you haven't even thought about yet because you haven't been able to hear from everybody around you and understand what their ideas are. And by combining it with these high performance standards, you're really cooking then, right? You've got a learning environment where everyone can contribute their all. I love that your mind, I love how your mind spins all these disparate ideas together in a way that feels so accessible. So thank you for coming on the show and sharing that delicious brain candy with all of us um, as culture eats strategy for breakfast and Ellie Hearn eats fresh ideas at work for lunch. Um, <laughs> Ellie, where can our listeners find more of you and your, and your genius drops? <laughs> I am, well, first of all, lower your expectations because I don't know that I'd call them genius drops. Um, I am on LinkedIn at Ellie Hearn and I'm on Instagram at pencil or ink. That's pencil as in what you write with O-R-I-N-K. So pencil or ink on Instagram. Thank you so much, Ellie, for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to spend any amount of time with you. Uh, and dear listener, we would love to hear your feedback, uh, questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, feelings. Email them, info at darlene.coach. You can find me on Instagram. It's also darlene.coach. 
and on LinkedIn. Feel free to shoot me a DM if you want to hit me most directly. That's the easiest way to get my attention. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You know you want to, you'd love to, we'd love you to. Leave us a review, five stars, helps us game that algorithm. And of course, share the show. If there's anything meaningful that benefited you in this week's episode, just sharing is caring and share the love. Thank you so much. Take care of yourselves and be well.